What if all the people at this class were young, slender girls? All ages, the poster had said. But supposing she was the oldest by twenty years, it didn't bear thinking about. When's Dad going to be in? Toby asked. He said he'd take us for a practice run in the car sometime this week. He's working late, Judy told them, and had to stop herself from joining in with their groans. She watched them as they slouched out of the kitchen and slumped down one each end of the living room sofa, their long arms and legs overflowing in all directions. Her babies. What on earth was she going to do next year when they went to university? The thought of it made her feel oddly breathless. She held on to the kitchen table, waiting for the panic to recede. It left her shaky in the legs and slightly nauseous. Bloody menopause. Or rather, she supposed, non-bloody menopause. The neighbour's theme belted out. Judy took several steadying breaths. It had been bad enough when their older brother and sister had left, for at least then she still had the twins at home to care for. But when they went, it would just be herself and Alan rattling round in this big family house. There would be nothing then to deflect her attention from the excuses, the working late at the office, the weekend conferences, the mysterious wrong numbers, the being too tired. She set to work in the spacious farmhouse-style kitchen, peeling potatoes, shredding cabbage. Her knife sliced viciously into the vegetables. Who was she this time? A new secretary? Some IT whiz kid? Whoever she was, why couldn't she stick to boyfriends her own age, men who weren't married? Judy looked at the back of her hands, practical hands with short, unpolished nails. Her fingers bulged round her rings. Her skin looked like the bottom of a reservoir in a drought. Aging hands. She put down the knife and felt her face. The sagging flesh along the jaw, the threatening double chin, the odd stiff hair she'd forgotten to tweeze out. Aging face. So, Alan was aging too. He wasn't the handsome sports hunk she'd married. His hair was greying and thinning. His waist was thickening. But the stark truth was that he was still a good-looking older man, while she was a middle-aged has-been. Was that why she was going belly-dancing? Not because of a sense of adventure, but because she hoped she would magically morph into a sinuous seductress who would take Alan's mind off the latest young thing at the office. At the doctor's surgery where she worked as a part-time receptionist, they'd all hooted. "'Oh, Jodie, you dark horse, you!' Putting the oomph back into the marriage, eh? Watch out, Alan. And she had laughed with them and played up to it. Oh, yes, it'll be Dance of the Seven Veils if he's lucky. She imagined the scene. Alan is slumped on the sofa watching the sexy WPCs in the bill, whiskey glass in hand. Then the sound fades, and in its place is mysterious Middle Eastern music. Alan looks up, annoyed, about to ask what the hell is happening when his attention is riveted by a seductive figure emerging round the door. Her head and body are draped with coloured veils, just transparent enough to hint at the luscious body beneath. Slowly she dances round the room, shedding layers as she does so. Alan is mesmerised. Can this really be his wife? But she is the sexiest thing he has ever seen. Why has he not realised this before? As the last layer falls to the floor, he catches her in his arms and flings her on the sofa. They make mad, passionate love. The knife slipped, nicking her finger. Blood dripped over the cabbage. Bugger! 
so much for dreams. Judy tore off a strip of kitchen towel and wrapped it round her finger, but still the blood oozed out. The mild pain was welcome, distracting her. She reached in a drawer for the plasters. How long had she been putting plasters on her marriage? Forever, it seemed. But at least she was still married. That was what counted. They were still together in spite of everything. That was an achievement, something to be proud of, when so many of her friends' marriages seemed to be falling apart. Women who appeared to have far less to complain about than she did were making a break for freedom, buying places of their own, taking lovers. But in the end, what did it add up to? The lovers didn't always stick around, and if they did, they just turned into husbands Mark II, with all the same problems as husbands Mark I, plus the huge additional difficulties of who has the house, who has the children, trying to get on with stepchildren, coping with a whole new set of relations, coping with all the relations you already had. The list was endless. She'd seen it happen, listened to friends wailing about the escalating nightmare. Judy washed the blood off the cabbage, dumped it into the boiling water. That was that done. She would leave a nice dinner plated up for Alan, steak and kidney pie with lots of lovely gravy, good home-cooked food that not many people bothered with these days. Whoever she was that he was seeing wouldn't know how to do a decent steak and kidney pie. He would come back when the shine had worn off. He always did. Maggie Stafford threw her heavy bag onto the back seat, started the car up and shot out of the staff car park, scattering a bunch of teenagers on bikes. Just down the road, a mother with a buggy and a toddler stepped out in front of her onto a zebra crossing. She stamped on the brakes. Stupid cow! You could have caused an accident! she yelled. The woman just stared at her vacantly and ambled to the other side. Maggie felt a pounding in her head, a tightening of her chest. Just one more thing, one more, and she was going to lose it. Lose it and enjoy losing it, especially with a man. If any man as much as looked at her, he was going to get it. On autopilot, she headed for home, until she passed the scruffy parade of shops at the edge of the run-down estate that always depressed her, even on good days. All of them, except the off-license, had metal shutters up, either because they were closed for the day or for good. The offy had bars over the windows, even when it was open. Graffiti was scrawled over every building. Kosovan scum go home. Wayne is a wanker. Litter blew round in a miniature whirlwind. Her own house across the town was a different world from this, but somehow its civilised quiet and order didn't beckon. She wanted company. She wanted a sympathetic ear. She wanted a drink, and she made it a rule never to drink alone. She reached behind her for her bag and scrabbled around for her mobile. Several calls later, she was heading for the Checkers in the centre of Mellingford. It wasn't a pub she liked especially, but it was convenient for Jan, the friend she was going to meet. As usual, the car park was full and she had to use the church hall one up the road, which didn't make her mood any better. She marched into the lounge bar, glared at any men who looked as if they might even glance at her, and ordered two vodka and tonics. She had practically finished her one by the time Jan appeared. What's that? Oh, no, I'm on a diet. I'll just have a slimline bit of lemon. Whatever's the matter, Mags? You sound in a right old strop. Where to start? Maggie drained her own vodka, picked up the one she'd bought for Jan, and poured out all the horrors of the start of term. 
Then he had the cheek to say that he had to change the bloody timetable again. He's had all summer to do it, and I'm the head of department. He should have consulted me before he made any of the changes. Jan nodded and agreed until she ran out of words and drink. Another? Maggie sighed. No, best not. I've got to drive home. Honestly, though, don't you think he's just the end? Infuriating. Maggie lit a cigarette and took a long, satisfying drag, but even that didn't really work, any more than the vodka or Jan's sympathy. Do you know, there are times when I think I should just get out of teaching. Jan laughed. Oh, come on, you know you don't mean that. Maybe she didn't. It wasn't the teaching, although Christ knew it wasn't getting any easier. It was the ever-changing goalposts and the other teachers. There must be easier jobs. Of course there are, but you're good at teaching. You know very well you'd never give it up. It's just John Lang that's winding you up. She was right, of course. I can't stand bloody perceptive friends, Maggie grumbled. You shouldn't rise to him all the time. I don't. Jan just looked at her. I can't help it. It was the truth. Here she was, a competent woman holding down a difficult job, responsible for the future prospects of several hundred young people, and she let a creep like John Lang get under her skin. You can't still fancy him, surely, Jan said. Of course not. Except that she did. They had met just over a year ago when she first came to work at Watfield Comprehensive. John Lang was the deputy head, attractive and about her age. He also turned out to be that rarest of beings, an available man. He'd been divorced four years and his children were grown up. Maggie instantly saw him as her property. She had thought that her careful siege of him was working. He was friendly, he was helpful.